Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we started the Knights of the Old Republic comics and talked a lot about the Mandalorian Wars. Now, in episode 14, we keep pushing through the KOTOR comics as it gets real dark and deeply into social issues real quick. But first, we have real, honest-to-God, Old Republic movie news. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. So, there is news about Knights of the Old Republic movies on May 23rd. Kate, author at uh, BuzzFeed News, was the first to report that Lita Kalogridis, um, writer of Netflix's Altered Carbon series and Avatar, is currently writing a script for a film based on the 2003 Bioware video game Knights of the Old Republic. If this is true, Kalogridis would become only the second credited female in Star Wars film history uh, since, and the first since Leah Brackett was uh, on the writing, credit with the writing of Empire Strikes Back, back in uh, you know, 1980. This podcast also recognizes all of Marcia Lucas's immense contributions to Star Wars, both credited and otherwise. More inclusion is always good. Uh, more perspective could certainly be helpful in the Star Wars universe, which um, has not always had the uh, widest array of writers in it or reviews represented. Um, many other outlets have since reported that this, uh, this Knights of the Old Republic, many other outlets have since reported that this would be part of an Old Republic series with Zach Sharp at IndieWire reporting that Kellogridis is working on the first f- film of a full Knights of the Old Republic trilogy. Reports vary widely about whether this is the Knights of the Old Republic movie this movie would be part of the uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss series if the Old Republic films would be separate from the Benioff and Wife, Weiss series or if Rian Johnson's trilogy is implicated at all. Long story short, there are too many rumors exist to speculate about who might direct or produce this possible film series at this moment, but BuzzFeed News seemed pretty clear in citing three separate anonymous sources who all confirmed one film based on Night to the Old Republic is currently being written by Colorgridus. That's amazing, and we're glad to be along for this ride with you. Also, there was one far-fetched report of a TV series on Disney+. Plus. In addition to the films, it's unlikely, but come on. We're obviously going to talk about that. That's a thing. I mean, we'd have to, right? Like, uh, we can't, can't, leave, can't leave something like that out. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited. This is, uh, this is definitely the... Um, uh, the 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 most uh, confirmation, the biggest uh, the biggest set of news uh, that that we've had because not only now we had Kathleen Kennedy specifically say they were working on something from the Old Republic or based on Knights of the Old Republic. Now we're getting it's literally based on the game Knights of the Old the original game and. We have a we have a writer attached. It could be one film. It could be many. You know, that's just that's that's awesome. So exciting, uh, exciting Old Republic film news there. Moving back into our our story, we are at um, 
Knights of the Old Republic comic uh, Flashpoint and Homecoming, uh, written by John Jackson Miller in 2006. It's a three-issue comic arc and a one-issue interlude. Um, characters, again, they, there are so many uh, returning characters include Zane, Jeriel, Griff, Camper, LB, Lucian, Squint, the first Watch Circle members, um, including Lucian, Quinilia, Thelm, Zamor, and Rana Tay, Master Vrup Lamar, Master Vandar Tokare, and probably a few others we're forgetting. Uh, new players include Roland Dyer, a human Mandalorian crusader who began to question Mandalore's motives and intent during the war. When he sent these questions up the chain of command, he didn't receive a satisfactory answer and therefore decided to defy the next orders he received. As punishment, he was placed on the front lines of the next battle, but survived and fought off the enemy only to run again. Each time he was captured, he was put back on the front lines because Mandalorian duty and honor something something... Uh, long story short, Roland joins the main cre- the main crew for a while, has some laughs, kills some people. It's it's all good fun. The Revanchist, a male human Jedi master and leader of the Revanchist movement, is shown with his face obscured until acquiring the trademark mask and name later in the series. This is the earliest appearance in Legends for the Revanchist that we're aware of. Um, you know, really wonder who we could be talking about here. Um, brief aside, the word revanchism means the political will to make up for lost territory for lost territory incurred after a war or social movement because, you know, they wanted to take back the gains made by the Mandalorians. We will keep up this bad nickname charade as long as the comics do. And then we have Dr. Demigol, a Zeltron Mandalorian scientist and neo-crusader who became one of Mandalore the Ultimate's chief lieutenants during the Republic invasion. He wears a head-to-toe black leather outfit that can best be described as a goth Dr. Skimp suit, just so you know what we're dealing with here. He became obsessed with the Force while witnessing Ulic Keldroma's duel with the Mandalore the Indomitable on Quar in... 3996 BBY. This led him to perform disturbing experiments on live captured Jedi. He has a mysterious past, shockingly. There's Krienda Dre, a human Jedi seer who is the daughter of Miraluka Jedi Noab Hulis, who saved Master Chama from exile, if you remember that little tidbit. He was apprenticed to Master Vodosiosk Bask and later married into money and had a son with the last scion of a dying house, Barisandre. While Barisand died at the Battle of Tobrala, she blamed herself for his death and for failing to see the rise of the Sith as he had taken maternity leave. She left the Jedi but continued informally teaching new series for another three, 30 years, though she largely treated Lucian with disdain because he was not a seer, refusing to teach him responsible for the formation and oversight of the Jedi Covenant, as well as the Prophecy of the Five. There's Hazan, a human Jedi, a human failed Jedi Padawan and former student of Arkajeth on Arcania just after the Keldroma brothers and taught Donita would have left. 
failed to achieve the rank of knight, but served as a field mortician during the Great Civil War because that's apparently something they had, and later became a steward to uh, Krinda at the Dre estate on Coruscant, became Lucian's informal teacher in the Force after his mother refused. There's the Jedi High Council, seated at Coruscant, the highest governing body of the Jedi, which includes Masters Vruk Lamar and Vandar Toker, both of whom also sit on the Dantooine Jedi Council this time. Also included are four human masters that feature heavily in Knights of the Old Republic 2. Atris, Kavar, Zez Kael, and Lana Vash. Finally, we have Captain Saul Karath, the leader of the ship Courageous at this time, who eventually becomes Admiral of Ravan, and then Malik's Sith fleet in Knights of the Old Republic. Here, largely played as a Republic counterpart to the first Watch Circle, who chases Zane and suspects him of being a Mando traitor. He's an avatar of bad military command stereotypes here, too. Timeline. 3464, about three weeks after the end of commencement. As the Mandalorians attack Vanquo during Flashpoint, and that was known to occur late in 3964. Locations. Uh, We will return. We return to Coruscant, but also see Vanquo. Part of the Jebel Venquo Tarnath line. The world is invaded by Mandalorians while Zane and company are on planet, thus ending the false war with the Republic. Flashpoint Station, a highly advanced medical, scientific, and research facility orbiting the, uh, the world Flashpoint, has a very brief solar rotation cycle, making landings and attacks difficult. This is where the Mandalorians... Send captured Jedi for live experimentation by Dr. Demigol. All right, our story. Zane, Jariel, Griff, Camper, and LB are on the run from everyone with no food and little money to use. With no way to find food or supplies as Republic outlaws, they do the only thing they can, scam some mining groups on Vanquo out of their credits and food by pretending a Mandalorian attack is underway. Jariel hides her face, uses Zane's lightsaber, and poses as Master Canilia, doing enough fast-talking and use of Carrick's force powers to fool the group who leave immediately. However, Zane had terrible luck, and while reaping their rewards from the scared miners, the Mandalorians actually inv- invade Venko. Jariel is immediately captured alive as they mistake her for a Jedi, and the others make their way back to the last resort, only to see a Mandalorian trying to abscond with it. Camper shocks the ship's thief from behind, and LB, having been told that the Masters are on board, gets the rest of the crew on board at the last second, allowing them to subdue the Mandalorian, who says his name is Roland Dyer, and that he can help them save Jariel. Roland explains that he's a questioner who does his duty but has issues with Mandalorian's prosecution of the war, and so he escapes to find answers, only to be returned to the front line each time he's recaptured. Why don't they shoot him dead for going AWOL? Well, that wouldn't be a very convenient plot narrative to bring a pretty useful Mandalorian viewpoint into the comic, now would it? We learn that Mandalore the Ultimate has been waiting for some kind of sign to invade the Republic, and the Jedi pull out of Terrace was that sign. Uh, The battle that began the Mandalorian War with the Republic in late 3964 targeted Vanquo as a diversionary tactic, drawing much of the fleet from the security cordon at the Jebel Vanquo Tarnath line. In doing so, the majority of the Mandalorian fleet crushed the small Republic fleet remaining at the line as they headed straight for Terrace. The invasion of Terrace would be delayed by planetary defense force, as well as the combined 
uh, efforts of the warring swoop gangs who called a truce to fight the Mandos together. Terrace did eventually fall, uh, which paved way for the Mandalorian onslaught, a three-pronged invasion strategy that largely smashed the Republican the Republic fleet that was able to respond and that we shall discuss the appropriate arc. The Mandalorians did suffer some setbacks, however, such as at Flashpoint Station. During the commotion, Chario was captured alive and taken to Flashpoint Station, the standing order for all Mandalorians during the war. If she was not a Jedi, she did carry Zane's lightsaber, so they assumed. Upon arrival, she finds the revanchist Jedi, who had been captured while scouting at Shruja, had been brought here for torture and grotesque live medical experimentation by Dr. Demigol before their eventual execution or death. She meets Squint, who is fresh off suffering torture at Demigol's hands, but volunteers for more when the doctor is about to choose Jariel. Squint apparently does this nobly because he can sense Jariel is not a Jedi and the torture would likely kill a non-force user. Zane, Roland, and the rest of the crew follow her to Flashpoint Station, but are noticed by Captain Saul Karath, who sees the last resort jumping towards Mandalorian space, branding Zane a traitor. Karth Onasi is present. That's about all he does here. Hey man, everybody loves Karth from... Uh from Knights of the Old Republic, so uh, we got to talk about him whenever he's there. At, uh, at Flashpoint, Demigol is finished with Squint, who is now completely bald and won't be stopped from taking Jiraiya. Uh The good doctor gets even more intrigued when he notices the blue tattooing uh, around Jeriel's eyes. However, before he can get any answers, Roland busts him with a captured and unconscious Zane. They left LB in sleep mode while Griff and Camper hid in a secret compartment on the last resort. Dyer demands to witness the torture and death of Carrick, and Demigal relents from harming Jarral again. In the lab, Zane and Roland overpower Demigal and leave him unconscious in a broom closet. Uh, seriously, that's what they do. Uh, Zane dons the Doctor's armor and uses the Force to dissuade Jarral from attacking him while they get the Mandos to abandon the station. Dyer and the fake Demigol create a diversion while Zane uses the force to place some of Griff's homemade explosives on the stolen Republic vessel. Then they receive a holovid from Admiral Hierogriff, who tells the Mandalorians that all Republic vessels have now been booby-trapped uh, with explosives to stop Mandalorians from stealing in the future. Griff, wearing a so-good-it's-bad admiral suit, sets off the charges remotely, and the Mandalorians begin to flee, leaving the Jedi to their presumed demise. Dyer convinces them to leave, saying he will, he will rescue Demigol himself, and that he will die in the process. The revanchist Jedi, who had been taken captive at Surja, including Squint, are freed thanks to Zane and his crew of misfits. Dyer goes and retrieves the real Demigol, though the Doctor did put up a good fight before being subdued. Dyer will accompany the Doctor back to Coruscant to stand trial. As they are about to depart, Dyer sneaks back about the last resort, and after initially declining it, we see that the captured Jedi haven't even heard about the Padawan massacre yet. Zane doesn't tell Squint, who happens to be wearing one of the red spacesuits similar to those wisp witnessed in the Rogue Moon prophecy, but asks him to keep an open mind about any nasty rumors that might be floating around him ab around about Carrick. Before the Jedi leave for Coruscant, Squint tells Jeriel to call him by his real name, Alec. Alec. That's his real name. 
on the same day that Zane and the squad freed Flashpoint Station, the Jedi High Council on Coruscant is wagging its finger at anyone it can find. This is our first look at the Jedi High Council in Legends, and it is at this time composed of council member council members from both Knights of the Old Republic and its sequel, The Sith Lords. First, we see the revanchist leader, fresh off returning from investigating rumors of Mandalorian activity on Onderon and Duxun, being chided for allowing his followers to be captured and for allowing them to scout in the first place. The council demands that he covertly free them from Flashpoint Station immediately, unaware that the task had already been completed. As the revanchist leaves, Lucian Dre and the rest of the First Watch Circle enter. We found out the Council had no has no idea about the Jedi Covenant, let alone their clandestine actions directed from the Dre Estate on Coruscant. They then order the First Watch Circle to be completely split up, split up, a- attempting to bring them to heal. The members then agree to work independently to catch Zane. Ronate, however, is furious and lashes out at Master Vruk Lamar, but he pushes back, stating that an alert on Zane will be sent to every Jedi. After being dismissed, the first Watch Circle members are upset and furious, with Rana claiming the Council wouldn't know a Sith Lord if one appeared in front of them. However, they agree to work together from afar. A series of flashbacks to Lucian's childhood show that Krinda took her husband, Barristan's death at Tobrara quite hard and partially blamed herself for failing to anticipate the fall of Exar Kun and the rise of the Sith. She also blamed her former master, Vodosios Kabaz, and the Jedi generally for failing to see the darkness in Kun. Unfortunately, she takes out her bitterness and feelings of regret on Lucian, even from a very young age. She also refuses to train her son because he has no talent for Force Visions, the only thing she truly believes can hold off the return of the Sith. Krinda had retired from the Jedi immediately following the Great Sith War, but many Force-sensitive children often come to request her training, even decades after she retired. Krinda turned them all down, not wanting to be involved in Jedi affairs again, until meeting the Miraluka child, Kianilla, in whom she saw great power. She eventually found and taught four seers in the same group. Lucian, meanwhile, was left to be trained by the family's steward, Hazan, who helps the Dreys, but formerly was a failed Padawan, as Lucian often reminds him. Moving forward to his teenage years, Lucian has grown strong in the Force, and too much like his father. She allows Lucian to spar with her seers, but they have no talent for lightsaber comment, and Lucian quickly beats them bloody. Krinda is furious and tells Hazen that her four seer students are the group she foresaw in Visions, and he begins making plans to build the Covenant. However, Hazen knows the seers can't protect themselves, so Lucian is assigned his hand to protect the four seers, just forming the first watch circle. In the present, we see Lucian get turned away from visiting his mother and find out he actually contacted Hazen to discuss the Rogue Moon prophecy, but went ahead with the massacre despite Hazen's demands to return all the students alive to Coruscant. Hazen then chastises Lucian and reminds his former student he lost an eye, an arm, and a leg in the Great Sith War. He's beaten pretty much everyone except Vader in that category. All right. Uh, well, that failed joke went really well. Um, moving on to... Uh, the next arc, Knights of the Old Republic comic reunion, 
written by John Jackson Miller in 2006 and 2007. It is a two-issue comic arc. Characters are returning faces include Zane, Jeriel, Camper, Griff, LB, Rana Tay, and Vandar Toker. Uh, new characters include Del and Dob Mumo. They are Ithorian brothers who are bounty hunters. They are bumbling morons who bicker and are largely there for comedic effect, though they do have their moments. We also meet Arvin Carrick, Zane's dad. He's a banker with a terrific steampunk evil villain mustache. Uh, He's not evil, though, apart from the banking stuff, as far as we know. Locations. Uh, we return to Dantooine for one patient for one page, but we get a new world created just for this comic. Uh, Telerath. Welcome to the inner rim banking and sometimes vacation planet of Telerath. The entire world is lush and beautiful and set up entirely as a giant space wells Fargo. The security on the planet doesn't protect the people. Only the money, because the leaders of Telerath thought the visible security would ruin the ambience. No, really. See, it's it's just like a real bank. The timeline. We are either in late uh, 3964 uh, BBY or early 3963. It's hard to say. And this, onto the story. It's your classic sci-fi tale, banking and frozen asset intrigue. Zane, Jeriel, Griff, Camper, and LB held to headed to Telerath in the last resort because Griff has a great deal of credits in the cat there, but they've been frozen due to his links with the Padawan massacre. Now, Camper and Jeriel pose as the account holder and his assistant, respectively. They meet with a middle-aged banker and explain that the money in the account actually belongs to Baron Margriff, a.k.a. Camper dressed up in some fancy clothes, and there was simply confusion due to their names. Jariel assumes the identity of Shantique, just so you know. While putting on the ruse, Camper realizes he left the account number on the last resort and decides to wing it, while Griff tries to tell him via comlink. Somehow, Camper recites the extremely long numeric code completely from memory, shocking everyone. The baker says it's a simple formality, but it will likely take the evening to sort out, and invites them to stay the night on Telerath. As their transaction is including for the concluding for the day, the Mumo brothers appear. They have been paid to watch the banker, but then reason that it would be easier and less boring to abduct and then watch the banker. Eh, I mean, I don't, I can't disagree with that logic. Uh, so they kidnap him in broad daylight without disguises, as one does. Uh, not wanting to have to put on that production again, Zane and Griff rush to save the banker. And just as Dob and Dell are about to escape, Zane finally gets a clear look at the banker, re- realizing it's his father, Arvin Carrick. The, author- the authorians get Arvin back to their safe house and are contacted by their client, Rana Tay, who is obviously furious. She wanted them to keep tabs on the banker and not contact him, and they can't just put him back now because he would remember all of this and report it. Rana tasks them with watching Arvin directly while she discusses the failure with the Covenant, and they determine the next steps. Dob and, De- Dob and Del then begin to bicker, and eventually a fistfight breaks out between them over who's, whose fault it is and who should watch their prisoners since it's boring. Dob dazes his brother with a punch and leaves to go get a drink. Arvin, meanwhile, uh, has been conscious this entire time and witnessed everything unfold, including the orders by Ronate. 
The last resort crew begins to formulate a rescue plan with Jeriel and Griff soon realizing the Covenant was behind Arvin's kidnapping. Zane, because he's a doofus, says that Jedi would never hire bounty hunters or do such a thing because the enduring Rubit hasn't worn thin yet. His friends eventually prevail upon him how stupid that is, and he realizes the truth, so they all concoct a plan that surprisingly relies on Griff's ability to bullshit. Griff meets Dob in a bar and gives himself up, claiming to be the Snivian wanted in connection with the monumentally large bounty placed upon the Jedi Zane Karak. But Griff impresses upon Dob that they should swap the banker, who is worth comparatively little, for Zane, who is worth a king's ransom. Though this would go behind Ronatay's back, Griff reminds him of the money involved. Griff implies that Dob is the smarter of the two, and Dob dreams of fully taking over from his brother, so he agrees and gives up the location of their ship. Griff also plied Bob with alcohol the entire time, so that probably helped. Later that night, Griff and a disguised camper distract the feuding brother, while Zane sneaks in the back to rescue his dad. Now we get to find out all about banking conglomerates and trusts in the Star Wars universe. Arvin tells his son that he was recently transferred to Telerath, but the rest of the family hasn't finished moving yet. They thought it was due to the unfortunate news surrounding Zane, and some of them's giving them a fresh start. In reality, Arvin's bank is owned by a conglomerate of very awful people and corporations including Zerka, Adaz Corp, and the Dre Trust. Arvin also tells his son that they never believed the rumors about him, or that if they did, he had to have a really good reason for doing it. Before they can delve any deeper, Zane has to use the, conforce, the Force to confuse the Mumo brothers and cause them to fight one another, allowing for an escape. Everyone makes it back to the last resort where the crew comes clean to Arvin about the scam, but Arvin's cool and wires Griff's funds anyway. I guess if you're going to be a banker, be the one who illegally funds the activities of your fugitive son accused of murder and his ragtag group of ne'er-do-well friends. Then, in true Star Wars fashion, we get nitty-gritty banking details. Turns out the Dre Trust is shockingly run by Lucian's family and has been for years. The Dre's are old money in the Old Republic, and apparently were wealthy scions bef long before their lineage began producing Force-sensitive. Since Jedi don't need earthly possessions, the family was at a loss for what to do. Barrison came up with a solution to keep the funds in trust for charitable causes until a non-Force-sensitive Dre came along and needed money. It's just that Lucian had been dipping his hand into the family till because he's not only a murderer, he also embezzles money from charitable trusts. Zane then remembers he's no longer a Jedi, and since Griff just got paid, he's owed credits as a henchman. So it looks like Griff writes him a check. Okay, so let's think back up and think about how weird that is. It's established that in the Star Wars galaxy, even in the Old Republic, writing is nearly extinct as written works are considered literally priceless and almost... No one even knows how to handwrite. But Griff just writes him a check with a pen. Zane has to share his has his share sent directly to an unnamed family on Terrace, presumably Shah Delvin's siblings who had nothing after their brother's murder because Padawans apparently get a stipend. Anyway, Arvin is transferred to the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine to run their meager finances. It's boring work, but Zane's family will be safe under the only being he feels he can trust, Master Vandar Toker. Regardless of Zane's status as a fugitive, Master Toker won't allow anyone, even a Jedi, to act against his family, so Dantooine is actually safe for once. 
Look, the check thing might not sound weird to anyone else, but you never see anyone write in Star Wars. You certainly don't see anyone just write an everyday thing. And he just wrote a check. It was really weird. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's deeply weird. A universe that's all about credits, where the closest thing we see to literacy is people understanding symbols mm-hmm. in cockpits. Very weird. Yeah. Um, all right, moving right along. Knights of the Old Republic comic, Days of Hate. John Jackson Miller wrote it 2007 as a three issue arc. Uh, old characters returning are Zane, Griff, LB, Camper, Jariah, Roland Dyer, Cunelia, Lucian Dre, Alec, formerly Squint, the Revanchist, Admiral Carath, and probably others. New characters include Lord Arco Adaska, an Arcanian who is the CEO of Adascorp, and the eighth Lord of House Adaska was childhood friends due to their family's deep ties and long money. Adaska's such an asshole that even Lucian knows it, has various schemes to make himself and Arcania galactic powers. Slisk, a trans a Trandoshan ship thief, but not a particular particularly good one he's tricked into swearing a life death life debt to griff but takes it way more serious than griff or zane expect helps the group escape raltier uh Trandushan are the reptilian species uh of the bounty hunter bosk who appeared in uh the empire strikes back and return of the jedi um the HK-47 series Assassin Droid, or HK-24 series Assassin Droid, excuse me, an earlier model of the HK-47 seen in KOTOR and KOTOR 2 behaves much like the HK-47, but not quite as advanced or funny. Uh, Carthonassi, beloved human companion to Revan in Knights of the Old Republic, appears here as a great pilot nicknamed Fleet, but also has a kind soul who helps out Zane and saves a lot of lives in the process. And E.G. Vam, a Duros and the primary lackey for Lord Adaska, is only in this arc for one page, but shows up in the coming arcs more often. Our locations, we have new places, including Raltier, one of the core worlds and another center of banking and finance that attempted to remain neutral in most conflicts to appeal to all sides, even though it was a member of the Republic. One of the oldest settled worlds in the galaxy due to its proximity to Coruscant, Corellia, and Alsacan, all of which were very early galactic powers, even sending out sleeper ships to colonize nearby worlds such as Raltier prior to the invention of hyperdrive. Um which happened around 25,000 BBY. Sirocco. In the expansion region, the Galactic Republic used Sirocco as a base of operations, displacing many of the native Sterab species. The Sterab are large red creatures that were drawn as, and this is a quote from John Miller here, big hairless Wookiee guys. The planet is also home to a number of human colonists from the Republic. If you remember Nar Shaddaa in Knights of the Republic 2, or a number of survivors of the Battle of Sirico live in the slums as refugees and try to boss around other refugees. We're about to find out why they were still so sur- surly more than a decade later. That's right, the Battle of Sirico, both in the comics and Knights 2, shows Star Wars intentionally confronting the issues of imperialism, racism, classism, war crimes, and colonialism that have been inherited to the series since its inception in some form or another. 
And here people say Star Wars only became socially conscious after Disney bought the rights. Timeline. We're in 3963 BBY. Uh, as reference materials tell us that the bat- that's when the Battle of Sirocco takes place. And uh, a little bit of background here. Uh, Mandalorian Wars update. Uh, since the Jedi fled Terrace, everything has gone to hell. The Mandalorians broke the Jebel Van Quotarneth line immediately and eventually conquered Terrace. From there, they built a warforge and a stronghold at the Ice World Jebel, uh, from which they could launch their ons- onslaught and a planned atta- attack on Alderaan. Mandalore the Ultimate sent his fleet out in three directions to Eridonia, care of Zongorlu toward Obroa Sky by way of Wayland, and of course, Sirocco en route to Amanoth. The Mandalorians uh, took Zongorlu and settled for uneasy losses at Iridonia and Ethor, though they did pick up many Zabrak initiates as a result of the foray. On the second front, the Mandos also decimated Wayland and burned Obroa Sky along that corridor, but nothing compared to Sirocco. Well, at least not until Cathar. The Battle of Sirocco is when the shit hits the fan for everyone. First mentioned in Knights of the Old Republic 2 is a battle that the Jedi exile Mitra Surik participated in and where the Mandalorians turned the Stareb cities into glass craters. Now we get to see what actually happened, though Surik is not depicted, and why or how she would have participated at Sirocco remains a mystery, as even the Revantist Jedi were only operating informally at this time. On to the story. In an unknown location, a Duros named Ijivam watches numerous monitors at once, finally stopping on an image of Camper taken on Telerath when the group was trying to scam the bankers. The Duros immediately stops the search and calls Lord Natasca to inform him that their prize has been found. On Ralt here, however, none of the crew knows this, says Jariel and Zane spar. Zane is practicing, but Jariel isn't pulling punches and disarms him and takes his lightsaber, going to slash off his arm. Zane can only wave for it, but his arm braces short out the lightsaber because they were specifically made by Camper out of a rare metal called Frick. Why couldn't they just tell Zane this instead of making him think he was about to lose an arm? It had to be terror sweat in the training, of course. Really, there's no good answer here. Also, Camper says he invented the braces because Jedi were always getting their arms lopped off. Ha. Anyway, it's time for the group to split up because too many wanted criminals in one place is a bad idea. Plus, it makes for more interesting stories with two groups of protagonists now. It's a sad goodbye for Jariel and Zane, though. Because they have grown fond of one another, maybe not love, but a definite fondness. Jariel, Camper, and LB take off in the last resort, leaving Zane and Griff to find a ride. Griff says he's got it all taken care of, but it turns out he just hired a ship thief named Slisk to steal his ship. And the one he stole is actually a mess ship in the Republic fleet. So that's less than ideal under the best circumstances. Now, when has Zane ever had good luck in the first place? The Republic Navy knew the Mandalorians were about to attack Sirocco, and newly minted Admiral Saul Karath assembled all ships to mount a proper defense using Raltier as a staging ground. Slisk, for his part, timidly tries to extort more money from Griff than they previously agreed upon, but he's just not very good at it. 
In fact, he's so bad at strong arming Griff that Zane breaks out into hysterics. So they decide to trick Slisk into swearing the the Trandoshan version of a life debt after Griff saves Slisk from a fallen crane, which Zane toppled using the Force, of course. They only intended to use the life debt to get the ship and leave, but Slisk is very firm to the concept of his oaths and serves Griff for years. A life debt is when one being is saved by another and thereafter swears to protect and ser- to, pr- to serve and protect their savior at all cost, even at the risk of their own life. If you're wondering why a bunch of slavers would have their own honor-based social custom, have the same honor-based social custom as their frequent targets, the Wookiees, well, you aren't going to get a good answer from us. I'm sorry. Anyway, Griff, Zane, and Slisk make a very slow escape as the Republic realizes that the little Bavoli is missing. Yes, that's the name of the ship. As they reach atmosphere, they are hailed as late and out of formation with the, re- with the rest of the Republic fleet in the area, which has amassed above Raltier and is jumping to Sirocco shortly. The three rogues barely make it information in time to hit hyperspace. Things aren't firing much better for the crew, remaining crew of The Last Resort. In fact, they're much, much worse. They are barely away from Raltier when Camper is incapacitated by an HK-24 series assassination droid. Much like the HK-47 we all know and love from Night of the Republic, HK-24 is a cold-blooded killer and much more competent than the normal droid and many bounty hunters. Unlike HK-47, HK-24 isn't funny and doesn't serve one of, oh, like the 10 strongest force users to ever live, give or take a fear. Jarrell leaves the cockpit to investigate a strange noise and finds the droid, who states that he must keep Camper alive, but Jarrell is very expendable. The two fight with LB hitting ATK-24 from behind with a lead pipe, only to be shut up like Swiss cheese moments later. Jarrell puts up a good fight, but ATK-24 gets the upper hand and finally disarms the Arcanian offshoot, moving in for the kill. But she's saved at the last moment by Roland Dyer, who blasts the droid to nothing and explains that he's been looking for a moment to depart since sneaking aboard at Flashpoint Station, but was never alone on the ship. Jaria looks for any way to help Camper, who is reeling from the encounter, and Dyer says he knows his way around a medpack, help offering any assistance he can. At, at Sirocco, the little Bavoli is the hottest spot in the entire Republic military, with Slisk as the head chef. No, seriously. Zane is washing dishes with the force as fast as he can, and Griff is managing the floor. All in all, it's a pretty good operation for Griff's pocketbook. Saul Karath is there and doesn't recognize Zane, who's wearing goggles and a ridiculous cap to conceal his identity when out on the main floor. Uh, being a bumbling doofus, Carrick spills dirty dishes all over the new, newly minted Admiral Karath but quickly apologizes and meets a hotshot flyboy with a devil-may-care attitude named Cartho Nassi, who's also nicknamed Fleet. Zane and Karth develop a fast camaraderie and talk about a great many things. Karth says he misses his family on Telos 4 and that he has a small child there. Zane doesn't let on that he's a Jedi. He's just pretending to be a busboy from the Outer Rim. Talk eventually moves to the war, and Zane wonders why they have settled so close to the Stareb cities, which are beautiful stone buildings and large cylindrical structures. The architecture is really beautiful, um, and Karth gives the Nuremberg defense. I mean, it's, it's really not his fault that they 
they park there, but he also does also really say that he was just following orders. Zane also sees a hungry Stareb foraging through the little Rivoli's trash and pays for his meal. While Sirocco is their home, they've been largely displaced by human settlers on the, quote, nicer continents, uh, end quote. And now the Republic is setting up base camp beside their homes, making them collateral targets for the Mandalorians, or worse, intentional meat shields. Uh, Karth seems genuinely disturbed by this news and states that the Stareb have only recently evolved to live above ground, so they still kept livable catacombs beneath the surface. Uh, catacombs that reach mi- many meters beneath the surface, in fact. He admits that he only knows this because he and some other Republic military, military pilots got a kick out of calling in fake weather emergencies, which would cause st- the Stareb and humans to use emergency protocols, drop everything, and retreat to the safety of the catacombs. They had to stop after a human senator complained because it was affecting their sporting events and social scene. Uh, yeah, that that's really why. Uh, Karth finishes eating and goes to leave, but not before telling Zane that they expect the Mandalorians to invade the system the next day, as well as paying for Zane for his own food and the Starebs as well. That night, Zane is still mulling the conversation with Karth over in his head. He's angry at the Republic for using the Stareb as either living shields or useless collateral. He begs Griff to pull out because they're in a literal war zone. But the Snivian never gives up money, especially good money and hungry troops. The two argue when Zane storms off to get some air. As he sat down, he got a good view of the Stareb city, but was suddenly, suddenly he heard another voice. Specifically, he heard Mandalore the Ultimate discussing the Republic fleet tactic of protecting Sirocco from attack by forming a defensive perimeter. The Mandalorians considered such a defense to be without honor, and so Mandalore ordered his fleet to make an example of how they would treat any Republic defensive tactics in the future. He ordered Sirocco to burn. Zane then saw explosions destroy the very city before his eyes. And then he awoke at dawn, realizing the Force had shown him a vision of the future in his sleep. Carrick immediately ran to warn Griff that Sirocco would be destroyed at sunset the same day. Griff points out the hypocrisy of trusting Jedi visions when those same visions are the reason they are in their predicament. But Zane is sure he wasn't trying to see the future. The Terrace Masters were, and that's why they misinterpreted the signs. Also, Zane could never see the future when he tried, only when he wasn't thinking about it. That's why he's so sure now. But Griff still doesn't trust it, because the Mandalorians weren't known for destroying worlds, they preferred to conquer and exploit the resources, so he decides to stay, infuriating his Jedi henchmen. Zane then leaves to go warn Admiral Karath. If you remember Zane, Roland and uh, company's exciting rescue of Jeriel and the Jedi from Flashpoint Station a few minutes ago, you might also remember that Admiral Karath showed up briefly to witness Zane heading toward Mandalorian space and believe he's a traitor and in addition to being a Jedi killer. Anyway, Zane stows away aboard Karth's ship and we hear that Onassi is being taken under Admiral Karath's wing and groomed for leadership. Of course, of course, Karth finds Zane almost immediately because he's a thorough pilot and his ship was off by a few pounds at takeoff. Zane explains the situation to, to Karth, who predictably disbelieves, though Carrick does prove he 
is a Jedi and that he can use the force. So that's a neat trick to have in your back pocket, I guess. Uh, but Onassi seems to believe his Jedi stole away for some reason. It says he's due on the bridge of Kareth's flagship, the courageous anyway. So he allows Zane to tag along. Carrick makes a brief call to Griff, urging him to leave immediately. Um, Griff had ordered Slisk to warm up the ship that morning, but his prize cook had made Trandoshan pancakes covered in pink syrup that smell awful, but apparently taste amazing, and they were literally selling like hotcakes. So Marn decided to see out the breakfast rush, and then the lunch rush as well. Aboard the bridge of the Courageous, Admiral Karath predictably recognizes Zane immediately. Zane still hadn't told Karth his name or real identity, so Fleet is pretty annoyed at being bamboozled. Karath accuses Karak of treachery, which shocks the bumbling Jedi as he thought he was simply wanted for child murder, not sedition too. The Admiral is furious with Zane's denials and eventually becomes so enraged he threatens to torture his prisoner for the truth, which shocks even Karth. Zane tries to explain about Flashpoint Station and the Jedi Squint, who knew, knows of his true deeds. Except he didn't tell Squint about the Padawan Massacre, and he doesn't know Squint's real name. But Karath relents and gives Onasi orders to go to the communication deck and call the Jedi to find Squint to maybe verify Zane's story. Karth still isn't back when the Mandalorians drop out of hyperspace. Zane is bound but still on the bridge, begging Admiral Karath to warn the people of Sirocco to find shelter. His pleas are denied, and without warning or demand, the Mandalorians launch hundreds of tactical nuclear missiles at the fleet, which is arrayed in formation to protect the world from invasion. Karath is confident in his shields and his tactical plan, and it probably would have worked if the Mandalorians had been firing at the Republic fleet in the first place. However, the missiles swerve around the ships and their shields and are about to make planet fall. The ground-based missile defense systems weren't online yet because the Republic didn't expect such an attack, and the smaller ships couldn't pick off every missile in time. On Sirocco, sirens sound indicating imminent danger, but the Republic fleet, humans, and Starebs still on the ground have little time to find cover. Griffin Sliss get notice when the sirens sound, the little Bavoli never having been prepped for takeoff. We then find out that at least 27 nukes make impact near populated cities, literally burning Sirocco, turning the Stareb cities to glass, and the forced cries out. On the courageous, Zane feels the deaths of thousands of people. On a distant world, Alec, formerly nicknamed Squint, the revanchist leader, and many other Jedi loyal to his cause feel the destruction too. And on yet another planet, Lucian and Quinilia are speaking on calm when they both feel when they both feel the echo through the Force as well, with Quinilia believing it to be a part of the fulfillment of the Rogue Moon prophecy. Is this, is this the first and maybe only time we see actual nuclear weapons in the uh, Old Republic canon? Because that's quite the, the kind of like specific and terrestrial weapon for this franchise. Um, I don't know if it's the first. I know, I know the man, I know they were introduced along with the Mandalorians, okay. but I think it might've been introduced a little bit earlier. Um, sometime, 
sometime between like 1993 when they were when they were um, introduced in Tales and and where we are right here, which is like 2007. Um, but yeah, they they were introduced along with the um, the Mandalorians, so that was. Um, yeah, so 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 it, it fits right here for the story, but you're absolutely right. It, uh, it it seems very strange that there would be uh th- there would be those type of weapons in um, in in a Star Wars story. I mean, I, you could see them having missiles that do the same thing, but just giving them a different name. It's kind of pointed, maybe, mm-hmm. to say to talk about nukes specifically and uh, the limitations of missile defense to say the least sorry that's my day job coming out (laughs) no you're no it's i mean you're right because like i mean obviously this is an audio format but the the ships are literally arrayed like completely around the broad side of the planet sirocco there's a there's a, a a page in the comic that shows the planet it shows all these ships and like if 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 the Mandalorians brought their ships up there, they were probably going to lose because of how it was set up. They they definitely weren't going to be able to invade, but they weren't set up for missile defense, and the missiles just flew right around the ships. And yeah, they their 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 Star Wars their missile de- their outer space missile defense system didn't work. <sighs> <laughs> Still, still, it's still missile defense. I cannot escape it. Um, no, it's it's really interesting to see, and it's really interesting that they point to. Oh well, I mean, also I like the note of the um, there exist underground places for people to hide, but if you make people panic for underground shelter for for funsies and chits and giggles, and suddenly they won't do it when there's an actual threat, it's a really interesting well, commentary. Well. Um... I, I hate to I hate to well actually hear yeah, go for it because because the 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 very last part of this is actually where Karth goes from just sounding like an asshole pilot <laughs> to someone who is actually like a good hearted person who was playing pranks on these people, you know, he, he was playing pranks and that was you know right. and we can see that the pranks are cruel because they're you know they're they're, they're they're on these people who obviously don't 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 know any better and they're being taken advantage of but um but but then here at the last you see that that Karth is actually uh at his core he's you know he's he's a good person or at least he's a person trying to do right which usually in Star Wars is in short supply as, as we well know but but no you're uh no the way the way I described it you're absolutely right it it does sound like they didn't uh, get down there and mm-hmm. and what I meant was that they didn't have very much time to get uh, <laughs> to get down there okay. I should I mean no but but that's that's good because um yeah I <laughs> I don't always I don't always write as clearly or and especially don't don't speak as clearly oh, no worries no worries um well we should. Sorry, I got distracted by nukes, but let's we can we can tie up. No, no, the, the story. Um, 
we we can talk about we can talk about nukes or we can we hey we can derail as much as you want, man. I don't care. Like like you know, I, I keep talking about how I want to get through this stuff and get to Kotor, and I mean we will, whatever. It'll we'll get there when we get there. It's not like we're on a timeline or anything. Like we could derail. We could talk about this, that, and the other, and and you know, and that's that's fine with me, but. Uh. In the aftermath, an officer states that only ship, eight ships made it off-world, and Zane asks if the little Bivoli was one of them. They bring it up on screen, but it's nothing more than the smoking crater, and Karth says they tried to flee but couldn't make it in time. Zane is devastated for his friends, while Karath orders all hands to retreat to Taurus to determine next steps. He throws Kirk in the brig, believing Zane had something to do with the attacks, happy to let the Jedi deal with him. That night, Zane, alone in the cell, mourning the dead, but gets a visit from Lieutenant Onasi. While he wasn't able to reach Squint, he decided to call in some extreme weather alerts because he believed Zane's story for some reason. He made calls to 17 cities, getting them safely underground before the missiles hit and saving countless lives. There we go. Hooray. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I mean, because I mean, and, and I think they do it on purpose, but like the 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 comic really sets it up. You're like, wow. Karth is like a, he's a dick. I mean, like, like, I mean, you know, he's not like, he's definitely not the worst person in Star Wars at all, but like, you know, calling in fake uh, tornado threats to like, to, to like a scared indigenous population to send them underground is still a dick move in my opinion. It is, but that they were still able to use the the infrastructure for shelter is exciting. So, yes. yeah. Karth saw Zane's kindness towards the Starob and thought of his own family and knew that he would want someone to make the same prank call to warn his wife and son if such an attack was about to occur on Telos 4. That's, uh, that's some foreshadowing there. So finally, Zane has a little hope. <sighs> all right, and that... Uh, roughly concludes our episode for today. Thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic and the Nuclear Weapons It Somehow Has. Next time, we will continue our march through the Knights of the Old Republic comics. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to Fotor on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. Follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton on Twitter. I'm at Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the force be with you. <laughs>